0: Hi everyone, Um, I'm Baric. I'm Rahul. Um, And so this is the podcast on uh, narrow complex tachycardias, which I know causes a lot of consternation. Um, So we're gonna hopefully try and demystify this. Um, And for those of you who are listening on a podcast, uh, there will uh, be a fair few ECGs that we're going to be talking about. So do try and log into the website to actually have a look at some of the ECGs as well. Uh, this is just one of them where we simply couldn't avoid uh,
1: ECGs, as you can imagine. Um, so yeah, over to you, yeah. Thanks, Barak. I think we probably missed a trick not using a tachycardia pun in there, but um, <laughs> we'll have to think about that next time. Um, so the first thing we'll start with, as always, is the definition. Um, so the definition of a supraventricular tachycardia being a heart rate of 100 or more originating from tissue from the His bundle and above. Uh, And it can be subclassified. Um, I hand back over to you, Balric, to to talk about that. Uh, So I just want to
0: be absolutely clear on this. So there are, I think sometimes medics can think of SVTs and, and when they think of SVTs, they're only looking at AVNRT and AVRT. As Rahul was saying, an SVT is definition of any uh, narrow complex or tachycardia originating from above the AV node. So there are six types. There's, The nodal-dependent types, and it's the best way to split it up. The nodal-dependent types, AVNRT and AVRT, and the AV node independent, i.e. the circuit doesn't rely on the AV node to exist. Um, And these are sinus tachycardia, atrial flutter, atrial fibrillation, and atrial tachycardia. And the reason that's important is because the pathways or the circuits that rely on the AV node to exist will, by definition, terminate when you block the AV node with adenosine, that's the AVNRT and AVRT, whereas the nodal independent circuits won't necessarily terminate uh, with adenosine. Um, One caveat with that is that 20% of ATACs are adenosine sensitive, but probably too much detail for the interview, but it's just a a nice nugget to know.
1: Okay, great. So what we'll start off first with is the AVN independent circuits, i.e. those of, of, More atrial in origin. Um, So the first one was sinus, a sinus tachycardia. And that you can think of that either as a physiological tachycardia, i.e., a compensatory response by the body, uh, or an inappropriate sinus tachycardia. So a tachycardia out of proportion to the stress um, put on on the body. You can also get reentrant tachycardias uh, uh, originating from the sinus node. And that's characterized more by paroxysmal episodes of, of tachycardia. Moving away from the sinus node uh, to the atria, you can get focal atrial tachycardias, essentially organized atrial arrhythmias originating from a discrete origin, spreading across the atria, Um, and that's compared to a multifocal atrial tachycardia, where typically, and we will show you ECGs of this, but potentially, typically three distinct P waves that are visible on an ECG and an irregular rate. Uh, and that in itself is associated with things such as pulmonary disease, uh, valvular disease, coronary artery disease, and, and typically low magnesium states. Um, sticking to the atria, atrial flutter, which is typically a re-entrant tachycardia, originating from the tricuspid isthmus, and atrial fibrillation, which we discussed in greater detail in the AF knowledge video. Um, and then we move on to the the junctional uh, tachycardias. Um, Baric, uh shall I hand back to you? Oh no, actually, we'll talk a bit. I'll talk a bit about that first, um, and then I'll hand back to you to look at some ECGs. So, uh, we'll first uh, touch on uh, the atrioventricular node reentrant tachycardias, and the underlying principle why this uh, occurs uh, is that the AVN is a three D structure um, with generally poor gap junctions um and so the connectivity between the myocytes isn't the best and that means that there is more of a risk of re-entrant circuits and typically the ecg features are you get a narrow complex tachycardia with retrograde p waves represented by a short rp interval um Perfect. yeah so
0: we're just going to show, I'm just gonna show some ECGs of these different types of tachycardias that Rahul have mentioned uh, so far. So the first, sort of the simplest, um, but the one that's often often missed is people think they're getting tricked, sinus tachycardia, um, you've got a normal, normal PR interval, but you've got a very fast sinus weight. Um, particularly important when you're looking at images of um, narrow complex tachycardia, V1 is often a good place to A, look for P waves, and B it's a very nice place to look for retrograde P wave activity. So V1 and lead three, they both look at the right-hand side of the heart, so look at a similar area, and are a good area to look for retrograde P wave activity. So you can always have a look here, is there any, any obvious retrograde P waves? And that's shown by either a, a non-typical T wave, so it can sometimes be hidden in the ST complex or the uh, T wave, Um, or just after the QRS. And the timing is important uh, because it can give you some clues uh, as to what uh, the underlying circuit or pathway may be. Um, Next is atrial flutter. This is uh, defined by this sawtooth pattern, often seen best in the inferior leads. And that's because it's a cavo-tricuspid isthmus circuit. uh, And it goes around, uh, around that area. And it means that you have these inferior Inferiorly directed um, atrial activity in inferior leads, which is quite odd, uh, and conversely positive then uh, in V one. Here we have uh, hopefully an ECG, which isn't too difficult. It's irregularly irregular QRS complexes with no discernible um, atrial activity. Regular atrial activity again in V one. You sometimes see. Some people would describe this, uh, we try and move away from these descriptions. Some people might describe this as coarse atrial because it looks like there is some element of the atria trying to exhibit some organized atrial activity, but to all intents and purposes, don't get yourself uh, hung up in, especially in the interview. This is atrial fibrillation with irregularly irregular uh, QRS complexes and no discernible uh, regular atrial activity. Um, and this is, the final, this is probably the, one of the hardest ones to spot, So atrial tachycardias. Um, these are because it's hard to spot because as you can imagine, if you look at V2 here, there's V1, you can see a nice P-wave. So you think, well, is this just a sinus tachycardia? Uh, the reason it's not is because you can sometimes, uh, and not always, see the second P-wave. This is actually an atrial tachycardia with two to one block. So, what I sometimes do with sinus, what I think might be a sinus tachy to make sure it's not an atrial tachycardia, is just move, uh, look at the, this P to P interval and mark halfway through and say, is there a second P wave here buried? Uh, and that's quite commonly uh, atrial tachycardias do have a degree of blocks, a two to one or three to one block. And I have no, <laughs> here's one I've cleared earlier. Here on the, the blue dots, I've actually marked. Here's the P-wave, the atrial tachycardia here, you can see the other P-wave as well, and you can see it quite nicely in lead three. Um, and the reason this isn't um, atrial flutter um, is because even though you might see a little bit of sawtooth, it's these P-waves are positive in the inferior leads two, three, and AVF. So therefore this isn't atrial flutter, um, or uh, typical atrial, atrial flutter, this is an atrial tachycardia from somewhere else, and most likely the left-hand side of the heart. Uh, for reasons I won't go into right now, um, and so then talking about the nodal dependent tachycardias, so these are no these are tachycardias that depend on the AV node. The rest of them have come from different parts of the atria: the atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, uh, atrial tachycardia, and sinus tachycardia. All come from up here. So blocking the AV node won't affect them carrying on firing. But an AV NRT is dependent upon the AV node. So the AV node. Um, normally has dual nodal physiology, so it has a fast pathway and a slow pathway. Uh, And as Rahul said, uh, when you have enough of a delay, they can go up one pathway, so down one pathway and back up the other. And so they have a circle going around here, at a very fast rate uh, and you have um, impulses conducted down to the ventricles, but you also have retrograde impulses conducted back up through the atria. So the majority of um, AVNRT is, um, is, is uh, slow, slow, fast uh, AVNRT and so you see a retrograde P wave uh, with a short RP interval. And again, I'm saying to look in the in V1 for this. So in V1 here, hopefully you can appreciate in this tachycardia, so going at a rate of about 150, you can see a notch in V1 just after the QRS. And this is a very short RP interval, R to P. Uh, And so therefore this is most likely an AVNRT. And I would never, um, especially in the interview setting, be 100% 100 say this is an AVNRT. I'd say something along the lines of, here's a narrow complex tachycardia with a regular regular RR interval. And I can see Uh, what looks like a retrograde P wave in V1 with a short, which would represent a short RP interval, suggesting this is most likely an AVNRT, but I'd like to test this further uh, with a diagnostic uh, vagal maneuvers and uh, adenosine, which we'll talk about later. Just in slightly more detail, I've just put blue dots here, just so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. Um, These are the retrograde P waves. This is slow, fast AVNRT, which is the most common, so down the slow pathway, and back up the fast pathway. If we go back to this slide here, down the slow pathway, back up the fast, and because it's going back up the fast, it's a very short RP interval. For interest's sake, um, this is, uh, sorry, that's one. This is a a fast, slow AVNRT. So this is less common, about 10% of AVNRTs are uh, fast, slow. So they are going down the fast pathway, and back up the slow path, which takes slightly longer. So you can see here, uh, not, not so well in V1, but actually in V2, you can see here, these retrograde uh, P waves. You can see they come on slightly later than, uh, than a slow, fast AVRT. So again, I've mapped them out here, which are they're quite about halfway between the T wave and the QRS. Whereas if you remember back to the other ones, they're straight after the QRS, uh, but this is probably slightly more detail than you actually need, but I think it's interesting. Uh, and then AVRT, um, this is the final one that's node dependent. So this is the pathway. It's not a small pathway um, going on within the node. It's actually a larger macro uh, reentrant pathway, which uses an accessory pathway, uh, which can conduct either retrogradely, um, so backwards, antegradely. Or sometimes they exhibit both, so they can conduct both antegrade and retrograde. When people talk about an orthodromic and anterograde AVRT, which is how we classify them, just make sure you're getting absolutely clear in your definitions if you're going to be using these words, um, which I would suggest you use if you if you get the opportunity to. Orthodromic means normal um, means normal conduction, uh, and the normal conduction refers to how it conducts to the AV node, so it's going normally down through the AV node and back up the accessory pathway. Antidromic, I opposite um, to how it normally goes, it's antidromic with respect to the AV node. So it's going down the accessory pathway and back up the AV node. Um, And just again, a few ECGs here. Um, This is a narrow complex tachycardia, as we can see, uh, and this is an orthodromic uh, AVRT, so that means it's going normally down through the AV node and back up through the accessory pathway. Uh, and you see it's a narrow complex tachycardia, and I don't know if you can see it, but uh, there is some retro- evidence of retrograde P-waves here in V1, you can see a slightly notched uh, T-waves. I've just marked them out here. You can see them here as well. So this is a slightly odd looking appearance to the complexes, and that's because this notch is representative way, uh a, a retrograde P-wave. And this is a relatively longer uh, RP interval. And so longer RP interval uh, can be stretched of an AVRT. And final few ECGs, This is an antidromic uh, AVRT. So this is going down the accessory pathway uh, and back up, the, uh, back up through the AV node. And it's obviously very, very fast. And the reason for that is because it's going down the accessory pathway i.e. it's antidromic, and that means there's no gatekeeping, you can go as fast as you like, and so that's why you see this incredibly fast uh, tachycardia, um, which some may describe as broad complex, so you wouldn't necessarily put this in this narrow complex tachycardia uh, talk, but it's the same, uh, very similar pathophysiology, so it's just an anti-dromic antidromic caviarity, uh, has, has a wide QRS um, compared to an orthodromic. And then in the 12 lead, and this is one you absolutely cannot miss for the sake of the interviews. Um, hopefully you can all see here, that these QRS complexes, I had what we call a delta wave, so slightly slurred upstroke. Um, and if you do measure your PR interval, it is very short. Um, so this is a classical ECG of um, of wolf parkinson White or an accessory pathway. Um, which can cause, uh, which can develop into an AVRT. But not all, not all Wolf Parkinson-White or accessory pathways uh, have any symptoms or, or ever develop into a macro re-entrant pathway. So not all Wolf Parkinson-White patients necessarily need treatment, but those that do are those that have symptoms, which you therefore conclude this is happening at the time that they have symptoms or, mm. or this. Uh, so, so yeah, that's, uh, that's, I
1: think what we've got to say about that. Um, anything to add there, you think? No, I think that's, um, it's great detail. And I, I guess the important thing to remember is, um, in the interview setting, one doesn't need to necessarily give a specific diagnosis, but that you need to say, this is a, uh, narrow complex tachycardia, um and understand how to treat that and um, evaluate it, which we'll go on to talk about. Yeah. Um, I I, I appreciate this This is,
0: these issues sometimes are, and like knowing pathways in a lot of detail is sometimes difficult and daunting, but if you know them, then you will generally feel far more comfortable speaking about them using the correct terms in the interview. And it does show your level of knowledge, um, which is really what people are looking for, enthusiastic trainees that have gone away to actually read a lot about the specialty they want to train yeah.
1: yeah. okay um so yeah that, that's our kind of basics of the, the different types of um svts um and now we'll talk about evaluating them um uh, and as usual one would uh, first assess their hemodynamic stability and proceed with a doctor a b c d e approach um but kind of taking a step back um if they're clinically stable, we'd start with a history. Um, And we won't go into too much detail here, but we'll just talk about a few discriminating factors suggestive of an SVT. Um, So typically patients present with palpitations, which are are classically fast and very sudden onset. Um, And they're relieved by factors such as vagal maneuvers, um, which they may do themselves, um, such as um, bearing down, Uh, which which terminate them and that's what a patient might describe Um, and they're typically your nodal tachycardias and often patients uh, have associated symptoms such as chest discomfort breathlessness pre-syncope syncope syncope. Um, and in your history you'd want to assess for complications related to that so do they have a history of syncope or chest pain suggestive of ischemia with the tachycardia uh, following on from the history, you'd uh, examine the patients, um, so a focused cardiorespiratory examination, again, assessing for signs of complications, including shock and decompensated heart failure. Um, and following on from your history and examination, you'd of course, one to 12 ECG uh, plus or minus actually uh, further cardiac monitoring to, to, to help diagnose uh, the specific type of tachycardia uh, or arrhythmia, actually, we should say. Um, and then with that, you'd want to do some blood tests. And this is more for assessing acute precipitants or stresses, which may be driving that uh, arrhythmia. So a full blood count, kidney function, liver function, inflammatory markers, thyroid function uh, are a good initial screen. And then with that, you'd want to perform a bedside transthoracic echo uh, to assess for evidence of an associated with structural heart disease. Or is there actually evidence of uh, tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy? And this is kind of a chicken and egg situation, but you'd want to essentially assess for structural heart disease that's associated with the tachycardia. Uh, That's your basic initial uh, kind of investigative approach. And then we will talk about a few other further specialist tests. Anything before I I do that, Baruch, anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, No, I think just to... uh... Bear out, bear out just two points there, which I think were really
0: nicely mentioned, the history. So the two things you, apps that I think, are, one thing I think is very important, and one thing that's five out of five, um, if you can say for your palpitations history, you want to know this sudden onset and sudden offset, that's incredibly typical of um of pathology. Uh, so that's a very important discriminatory question. Um, and secondly, the presence of any red flag symptoms, I has this caused syncope or presyncope? Um, because that... Determines how quickly you treat and how aggressively you treat this patient, um, and yeah, your examination was spot on. Just are they decompensated or are they in cardiogenic shock? Because those are crucial things to what you're going to do now uh, when you're faced with complex tachycardia.
1: Yeah, so I guess you're you're demonstrating that you're thinking about the algorithm and how to appropriately manage the patient. Um, so then we'll talk about further specialist studies, which. Uh, may be indicated um more or less say not in an acute setting but as a a further workup Uh, so one might include an exercise ecg and this is to help diagnose things such as a a catecholamine dependent arrhythmia or to access uh, sorry to assess apparent pre-excitation syndrome so let's say a delta wave is seen at rest uh, and it disappears on stress That would suggest it's more likely to be a benign pathway with a longer refractory period that can't accommodate very fast rates. Um, If relevant from the history, you may want to assess, uh, do a coronary artery assessment. uh, If you believe there's an element of ischemic heart disease, which is underlying uh, uh, the arrhythmias. And you may wish to do more uh, specialist uh, EP studies, um, which I'll hand over to our EP specialist, Balric, to to describe a little bit more.
0: Yeah. So I think it's uh, very common that you might, if you're faced face with a narrow complex tachycardia situation uh, in your interview, towards the end of your uh, station, you might be asked about whether an EP study is warranted and how you want, might want to explain to the patients. So very briefly, an EP study is when you ac- access the right-hand side of the heart um, through the fem- through femoral vein and um, and you put various catheters up to different parts of the heart, and you do different electrical manoeuvres to try and understand what pathways are present uh, and what functionality they have. Um, if there's problems on the left-hand side of the heart, you will need to do a transeptal puncture um, to get to the left-hand side of the heart. Um, so what how I'd explain an EP study to a patient is I'd say, this is a very, a a fairly simple um, uh, procedure that we do under local anaesthetic. And we're doing it to try and understand the cause of your symptoms um, or problems. And we put catheters up to the heart. And with these electrical wires, we do various tests to try and understand where the pathway is. And if appropriate, we will try and get rid of that pathway by burning those small areas. And then I talk about the and that's the benefits are that this is actually a very effective way of treating these these pathways with a success rate of if we do decide to treat them about 99 percent 98 percent um the risks are the risks you would now hopefully be fairly aware of for all of the <laughs> cardiac procedures so bleeding uh, infection at the level of the groin vascular complications uh, and then I talk about problems with the So you can obviously have a a a tamponade, you can have damage to the coronary arteries, uh, damage to lungs, stroke. Um, And then finally, the only one that's specific to an EP study is that you can damage the AV node um, for which the patient might need to stay in to monitor, see if it recovers. And at worst case scenario, um, might need a pacemaker. Um, But that's very, very rare. So, and we will obviously ascertain the risk. How close is that pathway to the AV node? Because if, you, if you're if you burning very close to the AV node, then that increases the risk. But that's more for, I think, us as cardiologists to know um, and for the patients you just say that there is a potential very low risk of needing a pacemaker, but it's very unlikely. Um, so that's how I'd explain an EP study to a patient. And there's a few things about like the EP study that you guys might
1: be interested in. Hmm. Anything else you
0: think
1: you might want to know about an EP study?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: no i think i think that yeah it was really interesting to listen to you actually there um i think that, that that's obviously beyond what you would need to know uh in some aspects but provides a lot of the core principles to essentially explain which, which could be a as you say a lot a end of the interview question and the scenario question that could be asked um certainly um i think that that covers it um okay so so next we're gonna uh go on